Hi, everybody. This is Kiav Namadi, one of your hosts. Uh, we apologize that it's been a couple months since we published a episode. I've recently started a new job and I've relocated cities, so I've had a lot on my plate. But now that things are uh, stabilized, uh, we have time to uh, kick up the podcast again. At the end of each episode, Tom and I will now reflect on the conversation that we have with our guest. In this episode, that happens at the one hour, seven minute marker. And I think it's a thought provoking conversation. In the near future, we will be publishing Dr. Sam's follow-up interview, and he will share with us how things have been for him uh, since we recorded his first podcast in January. We will also be publishing an interview that we had with two critical care nurses who took care of patients during the height of COVID, and they'll share with us what that was like. In this episode, we will be having a conversation with an anesthesiologist and he will share with us uh, what the rigors of training were like for him and how he's handled being a young attending in clinical practice. As always, we want the listeners to know that they can feel free to contact us with any comments or questions, any ideas, topics they would like us to explore. My email is in the show notes. So we'll get things started with Dr. Kellen, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So today we have with us uh, Dr. Kellen. He's a uh, board-certified anesthesiologist with a subspecialty in critical care and uh, cardiac anesthesia. Uh, we happened to do our residency together, and um, we also did our fellowship at the same place. We've spent the last kind of a year or so at the same hospital working as attending anesthesiologists. So thank you so much for coming on today, Kellen. I'm really excited to have you. Um, Thanks for having me. Maybe just to start off, if you wanted to kind of just give us like a bit of a backstory into who you are and kind of what brought you to medicine. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Colorado. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think uh, until the age of 12, I was just more focused on like sports, but I was good at school. So I like paid attention. I tried to do my best in that. Um, And then uh, when I was in high school, I kind of tried to start thinking about like what I wanted to do. Um, and I think, um, like kind of science probably attracted me the most. Um, and part of that was probably influenced from both my grandpa and then my dad, my dad was in finance. Um, but he kind of pushed me into science cause he thought that was more interesting. <laughs> and then, uh, my grandpa actually, uh, he had a PhD in like plant genetics and agronomy. So I, you know, Grew up with him kind of doing, helping me out with my school science experiments and other stuff like that. Um, And I thought um, that might potentially be something that I would want to do, but I didn't know what field. Um, And maybe it's a little cliche, but, uh, you know, we kind of grew up around the time where, like, you know, scrubs and house were big when I was in, like, high school. And I thought those were kind of cool. Like, maybe that might be something worth pursuing um, on, like, a superficial level. And then uh, my grandpa actually got sick when I was about halfway through high school, he ended up having uh, leukemia. Um, And that was really, like, my first exposure outside of, like, my pediatrician as to, like, you know, what medicine might be about. Um, And I 
saw like how meaningful it was to him, the care that he got from like the nurses and the physicians in the hospital. And I think that uh, kind of like crystallized that. I was like thinking maybe this would be a cool field, but then I think that personal experience kind of helped shape that into almost a calling in a sense where I felt like, you know, there's a lot of value and it's a very human endeavor when it, I think when it's done right. And I think at its core, you know, there's a lot of science, but a thing that was kind of beautiful to me was that I think it was a very good mix of, you know, you kind of have that analytical brain working, but then you have the human side where I think, you know, it's a, a privilege, but you're able to you know gain access to these really private moments and actually very meaningful to have, you know, kind of a guide or just someone that can support you through those, I think, as a patient. And uh, what drew you to uh, anesthesiology? Honestly, it was a rotation that I had as a third year medical student. I went to med school and I thought I wanted to do uh, peds because a lot of my volunteer experience was with kids. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And then I did my peds rotation and I liked it, but I didn't love it. Um, I liked being with the kids, but um, the stuff that I thought was intellectually interesting was also really sad, um, like the inpatient peds. I mean, I didn't really think that that was sustainable for me. Um, and then I did the anesthesia rotation, and I loved it. It was very you know, procedural. It could be very fast-paced. My background in college was in engineering, and I think um, that thought process uh, was very nicely in tune with anesthesia because I think in engineering you take a few principles and then you solve a bunch of different problems so like if you understand the principles of like you know cardiovascular physiology if you understand the vent if you you know understand the physiology at kind of a basic level then you can play um instead of uh i think some of the other stuff like with internal medicine other things i feel like just very susceptible to you know just like memorization or a lot of other stuff whereas i feel like anesthesia works you can if you think about things mechanistically it's it's a um that's kind of the way that I think, and I, that's how I approach it, and that was very appealing. And then you chose to do a uh, critical care and a cardiac anesthesia fellowship, which, for those of you that don't know, are the two most difficult subspecialties in our specialty. So it takes uh, quite the person to go through both of those. Or masochist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being polite. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, drew you to those? In residency, um, I think the people that I was attracted to in terms of how they practiced, they tended to be critical care and cardiac. I liked um, the ability to, you know, take a very acutely ill patient and kind of like guide them through that very tenuous, stressful phase out to the other side. I thought that was very, very rewarding. With anesthesia, some people just think, you know, oh, you, you know, put them to sleep, and then your feet are up on the anesthesia machine, and then you're doing Stoku the whole time. You know, the stuff that I really found challenging, the stuff that I found most rewarding were the very acutely ill patients, the ones that were very complex, Um, because it was like trying to solve a puzzle. And then also, you know, it's very rewarding um, when you can bring them in the other side. And I think some of it also has to do with, you know, what what the stakes are. There has to be a cost. There have to be stakes sometimes in order to create meaning, if that makes sense, um, which I, I wish that wasn't the way. But I think, you know, the the cases that have been the hardest but that have a good outcome have been the ones that, um, you know, are the most rewarding. So um, you've been in private practice now for how long? A little over a year. I remember when you first joined our practice and I was really excited for you because that first year you learn a lot, I feel yes. like. and. Even with the best training, which you have had, I feel like 
it's difficult to prepare somebody for just the reality of clinical medicine. And just when you're on your own, it's just a different story. I remember the first time that I was on call um, on a weekend and, and I thought to myself, so I'm the one guy in the hospital responsible for managing somebody's difficult airway. Like what if, what if I can't get it because I'm a novice, you know? So I feel like that transition is really hard because there really is, nothing that can prepare you for it. Cause you know, in, in medical school and then in residency, you always had backup to some degree. Like you could try to mimic it or emulate that feeling. You know, your attendings would give you some more rope for certain cases to try and kind of get a feel for what that independence would be like. But um, it truly is that like first moment when it's like just you in a room is a very different feeling. And I think Sometimes just the anxiety of that is kind of funny. Like I just, I remember my first week, I just made some really like silly mistakes, things that I wouldn't normally do. I just like forgot very normal steps that I think we take for granted on a day-to-day basis. And it's like, oh crap, I just, I totally forgot to do that. And I think um, part of it is just like getting back into that routine and then finding kind of your own rhythm, which uh, in training, it's a little bit different, especially in anesthesia, because you're always practicing underneath, you know, and attending for the most part. And the the plan is like never truly your own. You know, the you're trying to find some room in the margins to maybe do things that you want to do to, you know, mimic maybe what you would do in your own practice. But ultimately, you know, the responsibility is on your attending. So you have to run the case the way that you want that they want. So I think that was one of the cool and then also like scary things is like you know I I talked about all the stuff that I wanted to do when I finally was on my own and then it's really that time and it's like oh crap the weight of that responsibility sometimes uh gets to you yeah absolutely I'm just trying to think back to residency when we worked together I was a CA3 when you were what a CA1 we we were on call a few times together for like trauma cases and so I mean it's really cool to kind of like work with you in that capacity and then to like see you here now. What was residency like for you in general? In general, I it was really great. Um, and I feel very fortunate to say that. Um, you know, there obviously were challenging times, but um, I think once I got to the anesthesia portion, I was very grateful because I, I loved it and it was very rewarding. I know there's some people where their day-to-day existence can be pretty brutal or maybe they feel like they this is not maybe something that they want to do. I felt especially, you know, the um, the way the anesthesia training is broken down is, you know, you have your intern year and then you have your three years of clinical anesthesia. So like your second and third and fourth year of residency are all anesthesia. And second and third years were probably my favorite years of training because it's like exciting and new. And it also is, you know, you finally feel like you're doing what you're going to be doing for the rest of your career. It was nice because the way that our training was kind of set up was almost like the third year medical school where you like kind of do these subspecialty rotations after you do, you know, basically like six months of generals as CA1. So you get to learn, you know, OB, you get to learn cardiac, you get to do ICU, you get to do PEDS. So it was nice to like kind of get exposed to these little worlds and feel comfortable um, and not necessarily like, you know, it's impossible to master those skills in one rotation, but to feel comfortable and be like, oh, I, I've seen this, I can take care of this in the future. My last year of residency, I was very stressful. I took on a lot. I was a chief And then, um, you know, uh, we both were interested in a certain type of research. So uh, I did a couple grand rounds presentations on that. You know, one wasn't enough. I had to do two. And it was, you know, within like, you know, two and a half, three months of each other. Um, And 
if anyone has ever given one, it's, it's a lot of work. Like, um, you know, it's an hour presentation, but in terms of like the amount that of reading and then preparing, you know, the actual presentation, you know, it's probably what, like 80, 90 hours for like each, each one. And I did two of those while, you know, working 60 hours a week as a resident. And then you have to read and study on top of that for, you know, your boards and ITs and all that other stuff. Um, so that was hard. And then, um, I, instead of applying for critical care and cardiac simultaneously, I didn't quite, I thought I wanted to do critical care like right off the bat. So I applied that for that when I was a third year resident, the way that, you know, those, for those that aren't aware for anesthesia residency, you apply two years ahead of time. So as a third year resident, I was applying for a fellowship, which would be done, um, you know, after residency. And then during my fourth year, I was applying for cardiac, which would follow the critical care one. So then, you know, I had to go through that whole application process process again. I was flying all over the country, like doing all these interviews and then having like all these other responsibilities. Um, so it was a lot. And I felt pretty burnt out by the time I got to fellowship. Yeah. And then that was hard. I, I think that's a good segue into talking about fellowship. So, you know, one of the main reasons that I wanted to have you here today is because I consider you to be one of the strongest people that I know. I don't know if that's true, but that's flattering. You're also very humble. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, I mean, if there's anybody that can go through a insane kind of experience and come out of it in one piece, it's you in my mind. But I think that the fellowship that we chose to do is very, very demanding. And I think it poses a challenge to anybody. And I think the place that we did it to was very challenging, not necessarily, you know, I feel like there's some programs that are, you know, what we would call malignant, where they just like work you to death. Um, I think the thing that was most challenging about where we went was just that the expectations were so high, like whether or not you put them on yourself or you felt them externally, you just see these people that are, you know, uh, so brilliant and so committed and then trying to keep up with those people is a challenge. Right. I've, you know, so, I mean, what's unique is we've both been to the same residency program and then through the same fellowship program. And I think we both felt a very similar way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I personally felt like by the time residency was done, I was pretty confident for like the level of like a resident mm-hmm. and I felt like a big fish in a small pond. And then when I did fellowship, I, f- it was the exact opposite of that. I did not feel confident. I did not feel good. I felt like a tiny fish in a massive pond full of sharks I felt like I was just drowning for the first few months. So my first month there, which was the same as yours, actually, coincidentally, was in the bone marrow transplant unit, Mm -hmm. which is the sickest of the sick patients in probably the most well-renowned tertiary hospital in the country. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with very acute and unique pathology that you've never seen before. I think that was the crazy thing is that it was so acute, but then, you know, as anesthesiologists, like, we we don't do we don't take care of bone marrow transplant patients like really ever. Yeah. So it's, it almost felt like being a medical student again, where it's like, you know, Oh, you're going to get exposed to, you know, surgery or, you know, like urology or something that you've just never done before. And I think that was really hard after feeling confident, feeling like, Oh, like most things that I can come across, I can handle. And then, um, it's almost like practicing medicine on like a, another planet or like yeah. an alien world, seeing the pathology. Cause it's, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it before, you really have like no framework, no concept. There's so there's so many things that you have to consider that are so unique to that patient population that um, yeah, it's really hard. It's like the regular rules do not apply. Yeah, 
I'd like to circle back around uh, on Kellen when you talked about expectations. That's really rich. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, for somebody in the field of psychology, it's probably one of the things that is most challenging mm-hmm. of our journey is navigating expectations, negotiating expectations, living up to them. Um, talk a little bit. You talked about these incredibly high expectations. And so that's not just a, a comment that we drive by. Could you talk a little bit about what that, what, what those were or, yeah. and what they felt like and what was your interpretation of them? I think in order to answer that, you kind of have, I, I'd like to step back a little bit. Um, Please. Cause yeah. uh, I think just in the field of medicine, we all consider ourselves to be, you know, high achieving, you know, yes. very motivated people. Um, and, you know, it, by, you know, many standards in our society, we're very successful. Um, but a lot of times I think it doesn't necessarily feel that way because you're in, you know, a bubble where everyone else is like, very high achieving and, you know, motivated and smart and talented. So it's, it's crazy sometimes to think about, you know, like what people would see of you and like, Oh my God, that's incredible. But then when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't necessarily feel that way because you're comparing yourself to all these other incredible people. Growing up, I was always someone that I was more hard on myself than um, anyone else could be of me. I never had like, you know, a, a coach in sports or a teacher or anything that you know, would give me criticism that I hadn't come up with my own or that, you know, I felt like uh, was worse than what I internally would do to myself. So for instance, like, you know, I would play in these games, basketball, baseball, whatever. And then, um, you know, I would be critiquing myself really hard when I came back. And my parents actually kind of had the role of like trying to build me back up instead of, you know, being hard on me, which I think is kind of interesting because there's so many stories of, you know, parents that are kind of like the hard drivers or whatever um, in athletics and academics and other things. But I think I was lucky that uh, my parents understood me and they also kind of let me have space. But um, I think they recognized that while that can be motivating and it can, you know, help you achieve certain things, it also can be very destructive. It's a very double-edged sword in a way. Um, And I think, you know, me having that personality and then, you know, coming into, you know, medicine and and residency, that's something that I've had to be aware of and make sure that it doesn't turn into, you know, a destructive coping mechanism, um, basically throughout my whole journey. Um, And, you know, the adjustment to medical school was kind of hard, again, because kind of what you described is, um, you know, you're kind of a, a big fish in a small pond at some of these, you know, steps of the way. And then you'd realize that, oh, I'm, I'm really not that special. And then it comes down to like finding, oh, essentially adapting and finding a way to survive in each of these unique environments. Um, and then for critical care, especially, I think it was just really, for me, it was really challenging because um, it was kind of an area in which I, and maybe it was just my own interpretation, but I felt weak in terms of uh, kind of my anesthesia knowledge base, you know, um, you know, I, I felt very strong in terms of like, you know, running these big cases and doing these big resuscitation cases. But um, I think um, in our training, having some of that fundamental, what we would call like medicine knowledge, I felt like we, we lacked. And then, uh, you know, having that insecurity or having that feeling and then seeing these people operate at a really high level. Like I, I felt like I needed to go from zero to operating at that level very, very quickly. 
and not allowing myself the grace to actually grow into that role. It was pretty destructive because I was very hard on myself and I'm like, why am I sucking? Why am I sucking? Why am I sucking? And then it became this negative feedback loop until I just, um, you know, was was kind of in this pit of despair in my first IC rotation within a week or so. And uh, it took a lot to snap out of that. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. It's a really interesting thing. I've, I've watched my own journey around how to find grace around expectations. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we lower our expectations, but I loved the language you used. It's like finding grace to allow yourself to evolve into those expectations. You know, we create this almost kind of fallacy thinking that I'm going to flip a switch and I'm going to meet this expectation right. rather than develop, evolve you know, grow into it. What What did you notice for yourself in your own sort of development, your own transformation, how you sort of discovered to give yourself some grace space around that? I think for me, the, the, two, the two times in my life where I've had to, I think, really grow and kind of evolve into that role. Um, and, and I think kind of cut myself a break, uh, really were like intern year, I think, and then um, fellowship year, I felt like I was really struggling. And the way that kind of manifested for me is that like I would have a lot of anxiety and my mind would just like race at night thinking about the stuff that I would have to do the next day. And it became this uh, really negative cycle where um, I like couldn't sleep and then I would be like running on fumes the next day, it would just be, you know, all adrenaline. And, you know, I, I felt like that also contributed to me not performing my best is that I was like so stressed about not performing well that I'd stress my out, myself out so I wouldn't perform well. It manifested differently, but there was almost like a rock bottom point. And then I had to like bounce back um, where it's like, you know, I, I had to realize that like, this is not sustainable. I have to find out a way to get through this without destroying myself. Mm. Um, and you know, in intern year, um, it actually, it was like the first, first like week was really hard. And then I had like a decent day toward the end of the week and I felt like, oh, I could actually do this. And then I had an off day and I like slept for like 16 hours. And then, (laughs) and that was kind of like the reset that I needed. And then I was like, okay, like I kind of have the rhythm. Um, like I, I know there are going to be struggles, but I allowed myself to kind of grow into that role. During my critical care fellowship, in some ways it was more devastating because I had like this ego built up, right? Where sure. as an intern, you're, it's kind of expected that you're going to struggle, right? Because you, you haven't been a doctor before. You've, I mean, you've been a doctor for like a minute and then you're doing all the stuff that's new that you have like no experience with. So like it's more expected or it's more forgiven that you're not going to be like amazing right away. Whereas, um, you know, I was a high achieving resident, you know, I was a chief, um, you know, and I'm at this really, you know, amazing hospital, I feel like, you know, I have to perform to that standard. And even though like, you know, if I, if you ask any of the people that I rotated with attendings or other stuff, basically, they told me you're you're doing fine. But I I felt like I wasn't doing enough. I, I felt like I was really struggling. And I think that perspective um, became my reality. Like there's things that maybe I didn't do that or there, maybe there were things that I was struggling with, but it wasn't necessary to the level that I, I thought it was. You know, it was things that I would just, like, nitpick myself apart on. And I think I, like, had 
a tailspin. I keep saying that, but I had this tailspin, and then basically my uh, I told my parents that I was really struggling, and I was having like a really hard time. I was thinking about quitting, um, and then um, they're like, okay. Uh, and, and I think it was very helpful because they didn't minimize those feelings at all. I think they understood that I was going through something that was like very profound to me. If anything, they just wanted to be supportive. So uh, my dad actually like caught the first flight out there and then like stayed with me for a weekend. Just and you know I had to go to work, but then it was just nice to have someone there um, that I could you know have dinner with and just like kind of decompress with. And I think after getting through that, I had to reframe kind of what I expected out of myself and what I expected out of that fellowship because uh, I. I wanted to do like all this research and then um, I wanted to, you know, do well clinically. And then um, I was also putting pressure on myself because like, well, maybe, maybe this is a place I want to work. So I want to like show out and, you know, have these people want me to join them on staff later. I had to fall back on uh, some of the lessons from like, you know, sports and other times when growing up where it's almost like, you know, you try to shut out the noise or it's just like focus on, on one thing instead of letting all of these things get to you and, overwhelm you so I think for me I was like all right so let me I had to reprioritize like you know if the research stuff doesn't happen I I had to tell myself that that would be okay which was really hard for I think us because we were so devoted to that we felt like we were exposed to ideas that could potentially you know revolutionize the way that we did anesthesia but um, I had to reframe that, like, you know, if I didn't necessarily achieve that, if I didn't publish all these things, I, I still would not be a failure. Like, I still would be a success. And that was a hard, I think that was a hard thing for me to let go of because I had built so much of myself up around that as a resident. But then when I did let that go, it was this, like, relief, you know. And then and then also I, I realized, you know, well, I, I'm focusing too much on, like, what these other people think of me like I just need to focus on doing the job and making myself better right like it doesn't necessarily matter like if all these people think my you know all these small little things are not up to snuff it's like I just want to get the most out of this fellowship I want to grow and I want to be the best version of myself that I can be which is easy to say but I think it's hard to do and I think I I emerged from that rock bottom with that mindset that like this is the path that I'm going to go on is like I'm not going to focus on all that other stuff I'm just going to try to you know survive the year and really just do the best I can clinically and I think that change of expectation allowed me to survive and and I think Hmm. I ended up doing a lot better and I got more out of that fellowship than I would have otherwise if I didn't do that because I otherwise I would have just been completely overwhelmed and then I wouldn't I would have been essentially just like you know drowning or in quicksand wow um, I just want to hold that space for just a second. That was so elegant, the way you just took us through that. What I heard in that is probably one of the most powerful things is when we shift from this proving something to actually shifting over to the courage and the grace of learning it rather than trying to just prove it. Uh, it's a really huge shift and maybe nobody else on the outside world would recognize it, but sort of the internal journey is significantly different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, it made, it makes the experience so much different. It's like, it, it's really bizarre how being in a different space internally can make everything else so much more palatable and uh, such, such a better experience for, for yourself. You know, it's, wow. 
You've shed a lot of light around the experience of struggle. Wow, it's it's so palpable, one that I deeply understand. How has struggle been redefined for you today than maybe it was a number of years ago? How would you define it differently now? I think sometimes when I was younger, when I was like starting this, I felt like struggling was failing. You know, that was kind of a a theme and something that, you know, if I think back about it, like it's something that I've had to kind of readjust the way that I think about it my entire life, even as small as, you know, like assignments or projects when you're, you know, in elementary school, junior high, there were times where if I felt like I was struggling, uh, I would have kind of these like mini come aparts <laughs> that I thankfully don't really have as an adult, but it's like a skill that I had to learn because like uh, I was not used to struggling. I was not used to failing in that way. You know, like a lot of those things, luckily for me, came pretty easily, you know, when it came to like homework and all that other stuff. But um, I, th- I think back even then where it's like I struggling was to fail, whereas uh, I think in in medicine and then I think looking at it now, I, I don't think necessarily struggling is, is failing. I think, you know, sometimes that um, crucible, if you can come out of it, those that's like the most rewarding thing is that you can come out of the other side of that and you can see so much growth, you know, but it, it's hard when you're, when you're in it, sometimes it can be so miserable if you don't have the right frame of mind or the right perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. And even, and even if you do, like, I think there are things in medicine that just can be miserable, just like anything else in life. And you have to find a way to not let that consume you. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, especially for us, because you know we're we're not used we're not used to failing, and I think we have a very crystallized vision of what success should be. And if we feel like we are not meeting that, I think uh, that can really destroy us and destroy our our ego. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for taking us through that. For residents who might be struggling with um, their training, mm-hmm. feeling maybe like they're inadequate or maybe even they suffer with imposter syndrome. I'd kind of like to know how you made that transition to kind of get control of that a little bit. I think some of it, honestly, is just like showing up every day, making a commitment to get a little bit better. I um, mean, you know, there's uh, this one uh, doctor YouTuber I like who he had this little video where he said like, you know, his his goal when he was an intern was to just suck a little less every day. Well, that's a little blunt. I think that is, I think really insightful and and valuable. Everyone has different issues. So I don't think that's, you know, like a universal approach that everyone can, can utilize. But I think for me, a lot of, a lot of the times where I got through the struggle in like medical school or, or residency, like the, the hardest part, honestly, was just like getting out of bed and like showing up every day. And I think, when when you do that, half of that is, you know, that's half the battle. I actually remember when I was an intern, I, like, had some of these, like, visions because, you know, we'd you'd be, like, driving down the highway and the way that the highway was, even though it was a few states over, that was, like, toward my home in Colorado. And I'd be like, what if I just, like, didn't show up and I just, like, kept going, you know? Like, I, there were a few days during intern year where it was, like, I, I just didn't want to go. Um, and I was like, what? I kind of had this little fantasy about what what would happen if I just like didn't show up and I just like drove home if you can combat those things and then you earnestly just throw yourself into it every day 
also giving yourself again kind of the grace about like you know well maybe I wasn't perfect but you know I wanted to improve on these things and I actually did better at that today I think those small little victories add up and then you end up you know if you look at yourself over the course of a year two years a whole residency then it's kind of crazy to think about the amount of improvement that we we make right because you know if I if I was an intern holding myself to the standard that I was as like a you know fourth year resident that's not realistic um, but if if you would tell medical school me or you know, intern me, if you would show them like what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis right now, they wouldn't believe it. They'd be like, how the hell are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, sometimes when you're, you know, just totally immersed in it, you don't necessarily see that growth. So it's important to be able to actually take stock. Um, so I think allowing yourself the grace and the ability to evolve and grow and then um, also showing up and taking those small little victories make a huge difference. It sounds like uh, you almost had to kind of triage your life in, in yeah. a way, you know, I mean, it's, you, you had to decide what are my priorities, what really matters, because mm-hmm. I only have so much um, energy and I have to use it wisely. Yeah. So that process of tri- triaging, it sounds like, you know, you needed to go through that to kind of know which direction exactly you wanted to go. I yeah. mean, getting, letting go of the research was a very hard de- decision to make, but also unnecessary one it sounds like yeah um i it was a a hard decision but um i you know i had to as you say kind of triage and think about what my life might look like and what really was bringing me happiness and um i think part of the reason why i was actually able to survive icu is like uh, i thought about as like even even if I don't practice another day of ICU of my whole life, this year will not have been a failure, and I won't be a failure. Mm-hmm. Like even if I, even if I just get through this year successfully and I graduate, like that in and of itself is a success. And if you'd have told me that before I started, I would have told you you're crazy. But um, I I think again, like uh, there, and I don't think it's necessarily like giving up. I think there's some. Some people might say, like, you know, oh, you're, you know, giving up on certain things. But I, I think, um, you know, we best we know we only have, like, one shot at this. And you really have to take stock of, like, what brings you happiness. And, um, you know, sometimes it's when you're choosing these fellowships and other things, it's a little bit of a guess, too, right? You've maybe done a couple rotations and you're like, all right, let's let's go for it. Let's do it, <laughs> you know? And, and then um, if, you, if you end up not liking it as much as you thought you were or maybe you don't see yourself practicing I think that in and of itself sometimes that can be really hard for people to let go of because then it's almost like the um, sunk cost fallacy where it's like well I've done this much it would be a waste if I didn't you know use this skill set and I think that was something that I had to let go of too and also think about is that like regardless of whether or not I step foot in the ICU as an attending ever again I think that fellowship was very valuable one for personal growth two I think you know I learned a ton and I get to use those skills in the OR a lot. Um, so I think it was very valuable in that respect. But, um, you know, I think, uh, again, as we talk about, like, expectations and, you know, kind of the path that you want your life to take, I think you have to really think about, like, does is this something that truly brings you happiness? And um, I think that was one of the hard things, too, when I was doing ICU is that, like, I, I was pretty miserable when I first started. I was making myself kind of miserable, but then... I also realized, like, the day-to-day of it, um, I didn't like as much as I thought I would. And I think that was a hard realization, too, because I had invested so much in this idea of being a critical care anesthesiologist. And then I was just like, well, hell, I may not want to, like, do this on a day-to-day basis, you know.
you really illuminated something that I've watched through my career, not just for me personally, but how it shows up in the work that I do. Permission to change course once you're on the journey. And it is very interesting. I think it's something uh, particularly with very bright people uh, probably struggle with it more than uh, others because they, we set these expectations and we put these markers out there and, and these milestones and then success means we achieve them. But what if along the way, new insights, new truths, new learnings, new experiences tell us, Oh, interesting. That isn't really what I want, but to, and then to give oneself permission mm-hmm. to make a different decision. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. And I, I think also you, it's an interesting point where you talk about the external versus the internal. And I think yes. I have been most happy when I have been focused or I have achieved kind of achieved those internal measures of success versus those like mm. external benchmarks that other people may have set for me, right. you know, where it's right. like, I think, uh, especially sometimes when you go to these high powered academic places, there's almost like this academic rat race that I, right. I like to call it or I see where it's like, Oh, you got to like, you know, publish these papers or you, you know, you got to do all these little things, be on these committees in order to, you know, achieve that next rank. And then it, you know, you have to like work this much, take all this call, do all these other things. And I think sometimes it's hard to break out of that cycle because, you know, we, we go to these places to do our, our residency, right? So these are what our, our mentors are doing. And we're like, well, I guess this, this is it. Um, and <clears throat> I think um, it was also very valuable to have that experience and, the ICU fellowship because I was almost able to break out of that cycle because if I, if I would have gone in and, you know, didn't have that struggle, then I don't think I would be in the place that I am now, both internally and then also physically, you know, I, uh, I'm very happy with the way that my life is right now. I'm very happy at the place that I'm at. I'm very happy with the path that I chose, but if, if I didn't have that experience, then I feel like I would have had that experience maybe, you know, five years into my career and that'd be looking around. I'm like, you know, working myself to death and like, what, what am I doing? You know? Um, so it was really hard to have that right after a challenging residency, but I also am grateful that it happened then because I think it saved me, you know, five to 10 years of my career and then maybe a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) He can serve some valuable mental (laughs) health in the middle of it as well as physical health. Yeah. So, Kellen, this brings up a question for me. Mm-hmm. In your day job, you have people's lives in your hands. And so yeah. it there's only a, a very finite and rather short period of time to be able to create a competent physician. Mm-hmm. And so you, there is a component of needing to push. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to push so hard that you burn yourself out or that you hurt yourself. How do you find that balance between the two? When do you know when enough is enough? I think that's different for everyone. I think there's a, a certain amount where you, you do have to kind of push in order to feel comfortable with these situations. Um, and discomfort allows for, for growth. You know, um, I know sometimes you like to call it suffering, but um, I, think, I think discomfort sometimes in a healthy way allows for a lot of growth and residency. But uh, to answer your question, I don't know. It's hard to think about, you know, a structured way in which to, you know, know when to, to push or not to push, like from either, you know, if I was to design a residency program um, or even for myself, I think a lot of times I've just kind of been like, 
you know, thrust in those situations and then they, they happen and then you come out the other side. Do you think that there's a way that maybe we can have more awareness in our, in our training? Because I feel like we don't really acknowledge that we go through these difficult things. For sure. And I think that kind of speaks to the culture of medicine just in, in general. I think it's changing a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, I think about, you know, that generation before us where it was just like they, they couldn't show any signs of weakness. And I think they kind of like passed that down to us where mm-hmm. we talk about, you know, again, that feeling of, of struggling. Um, and, you know, you you can't show outwardly that you're struggling as kind of the implicit, you know, culture or the Im- implicit, you know, kind of expectation because if you outwardly show that you're struggling, that's that's weakness. We associate that with weakness. But um, if anything, like I think being able to work through that struggle or, um, you know, actually make a change in yourself that allows you to, you know, cope with the stresses of your environment, I think that actually is like the biggest strength um, of people that actually can do it. Because uh, otherwise, I feel like the strength that, those other people are talking about it's very brittle right it's uh it's not very durable and it's not meaningful Hmm. i think that is a really elegant use of language i would agree that kind of strength has a shallowness to it and it has no elasticity in it and no one around it benefits where some level of confident exposure around the struggle not only gives it credence turns it into more of a learning experience, but everyone around it then also benefits from it. It's, it's, I I think it's also hard and it's something that, um, you know, as people who choose medicine, I don't think we want to, again, acknowledge that struggle or acknowledge that we're, we're weak either. Right. Because we're, we're high achievers. Oh, it's so smart. I'm so talented. I, I, I can do this or it's like, you know, so I, I think it's kind of, a, again, like a double hit where it's like, that's the expectation that people are being placed upon you. And then it's also the expectation that you're putting on yourself. It's like, well, I, I must not be good enough if I am struggling. Right. 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 Uh, Tom, I don't think I've shared this story with you, but I certainly have with Kellen. Um, when I was in training, um, you know, we would do sometimes like 30, 36 hour shifts. The feedback that I got from one of um, my professors was, you know, like you're doing a really good job of one, um, you're at the tail end of your call shift, like you're kind of slow. The kind of expectation is that like you don't even need to sleep. And and when you think about it, he he probably came from a culture that was even worse than the one that right. we're in. Yeah. So you can't really blame him even. You're talking about something that is so powerful around how cultures form. They're they're living and they they almost have they have like a I, I describe cultures much like an immune system and they ebb and flow and and it's very interesting when that type of practice and I will call it a practice like that sleep deprivation um, is allowed to inculcate itself it literally turns into a belief system and it shows you how when we get culturalized around something it then starts to form an actual belief it becomes a distorted belief but nevertheless it is a belief and i think that's a really good example which you shared there uh kev yeah it almost makes me think of you know you hear these uh stories like whenever you're watching a football game about how these like coaches they just like sleep in the facility you know they like run on like three hours of sleep and it's like seen as a virtue and it's like well why why is that right. a virtue that, that doesn't make any sense at all yeah the 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 funny thing was uh my um i developed uh, palpitations for like six months and i for the first few months i was like okay this is not a big deal and then it kept going on 
I went to see my primary care doctor. He was like, you you just need more sleep. And uh, so my, my primary care was saying, I, I need to sleep more. My uh, clinical professor was saying that I need to just get over it and drink more coffee. Literally, that that was his prescription. So. <laughs> yeah, let's strip those adrenals down. <laughs> so, but you know, Tom, I do, I mean, since you work with healthcare on a um, organizational level, I would be curious to hear uh, your perspective on how uh, one can help shift the culture in a organization or a system. Yeah. Oh God, that that is uh, that right there might be one of my favorite questions. Being in or uh, being a sort of a change scientist, change strategist. Um, the the essence of change is a very fascinating thing. I was making a note when Kellen was talking, and I I, I just was so moved years ago. Um, I was attending a lecture and the lecture he um he was an anthropologist and he said you know all of the great things in the world he said whether it's the development of a vaccine whether it's a discovery of whatever it might be he said was made up of a lot of small things and kellen said something earlier and i made this note oh yes uh this big thing of his was made up of a lot of small things um what I am aware of, and I've really been watching this through the years of my career, is we have a tendency, and I think with all of our education, all of our, you know, sort of expertise and all of our success, we have a tendency to want to complicate things. And it's actually the ego that wants to do that. The more complicated it is, the more important we are. And so I've watched this, like, for instance, I've watched people ahead of me come into organizations and complicate things to the point that no one can find their way through it. So then I come in and I go, oh, God, okay, let's just reduce this down to the three core things that we're going to focus on. Um, What I've become aware of around change, and I decided to really put it, you know, the best way to research it was to actually jump in the middle of the sandbox and actually start doing it. And what I've discovered, and I, I, you know, and I don't have any IP on this, and I think people much more wise than me through the ages have discovered this, is it only takes, it takes an initial step. And we know this for a fact in the biological world that you add, you shift the compound of something, you've instantly changed the alchemy. Okay. We know that to be scientifically true. And so all it takes is one person to start to initiate. And the way that I try to offer counsel and strategy around this is it only takes one person to initiate conversation around something. And we have a tendency to think that we have to come in and make a grand gesture or somehow we got to change our protocols around sleep for residents. (laughs) But what if one person said, you know, this is a huge issue for us and we've we've created such an entrenched pattern around it and the damage it does are we willing so here's the question just role playing it out are we willing to explore this are we willing to challenge it are we willing to try to start doing something different all it takes is one person to start the conversation around could this be different And we frequently get overwhelmed because we think we need to come up with the solution to it 
when in fact what it's asking for is the initiation of a new conversation. Mm -hmm. And that is what I try to put into practice in my work um, is um, I remember I was working on a project and uh, I appreciate (laughs) the way we've kept names out of things. So I was working with a huge uh, uh, medical research facility. uh, So both had a medical center and had all of the professional schools as well. And we're doing a deep work around its identity on the national landscape. And I remember everybody was so excited around, you know, how they were going to be positioned more nationally, how they were going to be talking about themselves and just bringing a more fresh and authentic voice onto the healthcare landscape. And I remember the change was so significant. I was sitting around the room with all of the executives of the institution. I just watched everybody panic and everybody started moving to the sidelines. And rather than just pushing hard on them, um, I said, you know, let's just pause the conversation here for a moment. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to take you back six weeks ago when we all sat in this room and everybody was filled with so much inspiration around the possibilities for the future of the institution and who it wanted to be on the greater landscape. And today you're really looking at something that is really robust and profoundly courageous and you're scared. And the fear is okay. The running from it is not okay. Hmm. And so just like we do in all of your research, in all of the ways we practice medicine here, we do it with a sense of dedication, conviction, but with also a lot of courage. And that's what's being asked of you today in this room. And then everybody just leaned right back in to the conversation. So I really believe that it is uh, the ability to initiate a new conversation is at the core of it, and it's what's really being asked, rather than trying to be heroic and come up with the singular new solution to it. Because we have to do it together. We're not going to do it in isolation. We're not going to do it independently. But it only takes an independent voice to bring the collective mindset into a discussion around it. I think that's a very powerful statement. Um, and, you know, in our conversations with, with Scott, uh, we came yes. up to a similar conclusion, which was just kind of, you know, be the change that you want to see. Absolutely. And also with Bahar, which was, you know, save yourself and you've saved the world. Right. Um, right. You know, so in a way it's like you, you can do what you can do, which is really to just start with yourself. And then everything else just, I think, falls into place. And in, and in terms of your comment of, you know, creating some big foundational change that I don't think that tends to work. Cause if let's say, if it you, doesn't. Wanted, you know, if you uh, wanted to come up with some kind of like burnout project that reduces, you know, the rate of burnout in uh, residents and you give them like a module to do another check to box that would actually promote further burnout. Cause now they feel like they have another task that they need to just take care of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and comments that Kellen made earlier, that I'll just kind of paraphrase, but he talked about how he shifted into his internal world, which centered him around fresh context. 
And I, and one of the things that I've really learned in the way we are deeply wired is that when we examine our own perspective on something, and that is an internal thing, that perspective is a very centering experience and it allows us now to make a decision about doing something different rather than spinning, continuing to spin in a state of anxiety that only projects out. When we go inside, like he has described, and we examine what's going on, all of a sudden we have fresh perspective. And it sounds more simple, but it's actually the more uh, difficult path. It's exactly right. Because the difficult, so that is really true. And it's a, it's a thing that I've heard throughout my career is, isn't it interesting the way we keep wanting to do something that's more diff, that is more complicated, but to calm ourselves down just enough in any given moment to say, I need to take an examination. What is going? So there's this thing I teach in the field of negotiations and I have to use it a lot when the world is spinning and, you know, I'm in a room and there's just chaos going on and uh, people are arm wrestling and everybody's trying to outsmart or outright the next person. And I just call, I push the pause button and then I push the pause button externally just to quiet the noise for just a moment that we can reorient ourselves and think in terms of what do you do in the middle of a crash in the middle of that moment where a crash is going on. I mean, yeah, structurally we know what's going on in the room, but what's going on at a deeper level. Um, Can you help to find crash for me? Oh yeah. So you're in the midst, you're in critical care and you've got a, a patient uh, coding on you. Hmm. Wow. Uh, maybe it's trite, but, um, you know, I no. think back to a, you know, house of God where it's like, you know, the first pulse, you take it a code as your own. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I think, um, when, when I've been presented with those, situations i think um a lot of our training kind of kicks in but in terms of you're right there's kind of a i don't know if it's a centering because you're not really looking inward but there's almost like a state of calm where it's like you focus on the things that you can control and the next steps that you need to take in order to try to keep this person alive right so it's it's kind of a weird headspace because you know you can't you can't think about like oh my god this is someone's you know son, daughter, father, mother, whatever that is, you know, on the table when they're, they're like dying. It's like, it's more, it's almost like, okay, this is, this is the problem. These are the steps I have to take in order to get us through the next couple minutes. Right. And then, and then once you get through those next couple minutes and it's like, all right, now I've stabilized those, what, what can I do to try to further optimize them? And then you kind of like have to keep circling back and then going through those steps, if that makes sense. Bravo. Um, yeah. It did. It's exactly right. So it's about calming the chaos, calming the noise, so that you can focus on the most important thing in that given moment. And I, there's a, both a strategy around it, there's a science around it, but there's also a profound philosophy around it as well. Both of those are a very good description. You know, it's 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 hard to capture it. Something kicks in where you think to yourself, "Okay, I now need to be present." 
Now all of my past, all of my future is gone. And the only thing that matters is this moment. And there's something very deeply calming and grounding about that. And I feel like you kind of just get into this zone where it's less medical and more even artistic. Like you feel the situation. And then from time to time, you have to step out of it and then be, you know, analytical and like go through a certain checklist and then get back into that like artistic flow state. So you kind of go back and forth. It's it's a very unique space to be in. Yeah. That's that's one of the things that I think is interesting about anesthesia too, because you can like read all these textbooks and like, you know, they may present you these scenarios and the things that you do. But I think every every patient, every case has its own rhythm is like you're talking about. Um, And I think... um, Anyone who does anesthesia, I think, knows what you talk about when you say, like, what you feel, right? Because there are things where it's like you can look at the monitors and you can be very scientific about it, but there's there's something about, you know, you you get to know this patient and how they're going to react to certain situations under anesthesia. The thing that's nice about anesthesia and also about those situations is that you have to be flexible, right? Is that you have, there are many different ways to go about getting the same solution, right? You can run a case many different ways. You can do a lot of different things. Like there are certain core things that you have to do, but I think, as you say, it's like, uh, you, I think you once talked about, uh, you know, uh, it's like an art, every artist paints with a different brush or every anesthesiologist kind of does the same thing. I think that's very profound, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, I, I like the field is that there, there is the hard science, but then there also is like the art to it. Absolutely. So one of the things that I uh, particularly like about this field is um, that you need a certain degree of uh, emotional control. The, the fear can paralyze you. And so in our, in our specialty, I think we learn to, I don't know if numbing is the right term, but you learn to quiet that voice inside of your head that is casting doubt because you can't function if you're not confident. Yeah. I think there's a certain degree where you have to compartmentalize, um, but I, I think it is important to at least the, the way that I've been able to try to cope afterwards is to like, um, you know, you process, find someone to like debrief with, whether it's a yes. colleague or family member. Because there have been times where I've experienced, uh, and I think I've told you this story, where you like experience something very profound and deep and traumatic, and then, um, you know, because of the necessity of work, you have to like move on to the next case and you had like no time to really process that. So you kind of have to take a active approach to figuring out what that made you feel and working through it. Otherwise, uh, it's almost like the Midwest approach where you just like push it down and then it bubbles up years later. But I, I remember um, very specifically, I think the most crystallized uh, experience where I had that happen was um, I was a CA1 we had this guy that came in um, that had essentially gotten a gunfight with uh, the police, and then he comes in in, in extremis, and um, you know it was very traumatic, and you know we did our best, but the guy ended up you know passing away on the table, and then um, you know we we just maybe had like two minutes to sit down in our workroom, and we had started to talk about it, and then we got the call for another emergency. You know we had like a, a patient that needed to go for an emergent uh, cranny. You know, that person was sick, then we come back, and then, like, literally within another minute, we had, like, another emergency. So it was, like, after experiencing this very profound shared trauma, we all were, like, isolated in anesthesia from each other very, very quickly. It was basically that way until the end of our shift, and it was, I think, I think that was, like, a Friday night shift, and um, I came home, like, Saturday morning, and I'm, like, I need to talk to someone, Um, and I... I feel bad because I don't want to, like, you know, dump my emotional baggage on someone. But I, like, I called my dad, and I was like, 
bad, like this was really bad and this is what happened. I just need to tell someone that this happened. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was, that was very helpful just to be able to try to like process it. Otherwise, it, I think that can also lead to those feelings that we sometimes feel where it's like isolation and then burnout and other things because it's not just the the work um you know intellectually i think it can be very taxing but then there's also the the humanity of it because really it is sometimes there there are these life or death scenarios there are consequences and costs and you know we we bear witness a lot of times and i think unless you find a way to work through them i mean you're, you're never going to get over it but find a way to process that in a healthy way i think it, it can be very destructive as well that's absolutely true when we don't process those real experiences, what they do is they pull back inside of us and they start building into all kinds of interesting narratives. Those narratives don't serve us because what they do is they turn into anxiety. So they either move us into a defensive posture or move into patterns of avoidance. And that's very dangerous, both for our own mental health, but then also how we navigate in those situations in the future. So you you have a real practice, Kellen, of processing things and getting them out. Uh, and we, we know that there's a, a slight purging effect. It can look very simple. And a lot of times we think if something's not complicated, it's not going to be beneficial. But the literal externalizing of an experience starts to reframe it. And one of the things that we understand about trauma and we understand about trapped pain, we understand about healing is the ability to pull it out so that it actually has a voice uh, rather than it stays inside and turns into projections and different kinds of narratives. So that's, um, yeah, it's a very, very powerful thing. And that came up in... Uh, other conversations was uh, how do we start developing uh, practices that become culturalized inside of medicine that we can take brief moments moments and process together, use this connectivity, use the sacredness of the of our time together, our relationships, and the fact that, that we're in this together, and allow our humanity to express itself in that. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I think that's very poignant. And it's something that, honestly, I have to make a conscious effort. And it's something that I struggle with a lot, because I wonder, as you were talking about that, you know, uh, when you're compartmentalizing, you kind of make it quiet, that's so like necessary in that moment. But then I almost wonder if I'm like depriving myself of, uh, you know, an, an essential part of humanity sometimes, because I feel like, um, you know, you, you take that skill, which is very useful in the OR, but then sometimes that can bleed into other parts of your life. And I, I realize there are times when um, I, I do feel like numb, like I don't necessarily, I try to think back to like how I would have processed that before medical school. And it's very, very different. Um, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I think the best thing that I can do is just try to be conscious of it and make sure that I'm not robbing right. myself of my humanity. But um, right. it's it's so hard because like there, it, what is necessary and what is needed of you in that moment, especially in our field, like you you can't let that overwhelm you. You kind of have to have that clear mind, but then you can't just dump it away forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we think, and, and that's that weird distortion that we're trying to clean up, and it's showing itself in lots of interesting ways through us 
uh, across society, both in our individual lives and our collective lives, in how we think that it is a courageous act to move into avoidance around something painful, when in fact, the real courage and the real strength is, let's lean into this and have a real conversation around its implications. So um, I, it's a it's a new muscle uh, that we're developing that I think is profoundly atrophied. You know, there are certain things that we have to go through. For example, when you're a novice in a very procedure-heavy field, Mm -hmm. you have to go through a certain period of time in which you're going to struggle with it. And and I think it's important to know that uh, the struggle is normal. The feelings that you have are normal. If they're struggling, just to know that you're not alone. And we all go through it. But it does certainly help to just speak with, with your colleagues about it and just get it off your chest, so to speak. Yeah, I think the best wellness activity we ever, we ever had in residency, frankly, was happy hour with our colleagues when uh, when we got off early. I think there's, uh, like, that catharsis is so vital. It doesn't necessarily have to be structured, um, and I think sometimes it can be hard to structure it, but I think allowing space for those type of conversations to happen is, like, uh, is so very needed. And I think, I mean, there were, that got me through a lot of, tough days, frankly, in, in residency was, you know, being able to rely on people in my class, rely on good seniors like yourself. Um, you know, I, you, I think sometimes you just have to, again, like feel heard and it helps to have someone who's going through a similar experience to kind of like reinforce that you're not crazy. This is kind of a shared experience, shared struggle. Yeah. And the thing that I get from, uh, from you, Tom, is really just to keep it simple. And yeah, just, to, just to start small, just talk yep. about it as Absolutely. simple as that. And, and Kellen just pulled that out. I was just like, oh, wow, that was just beautiful what he said. It can be hard to structure something, but uh, like the, the way that you talked about it, you know, those happy hours, which had a level of spontaneity in it. I think that the more that we can lean into the spontaneity and not try to complicate the process, the may it, the more beneficial it is the more real it is and the more actually accessible it is. And I think that we so frequently need to formalize things and try to get a process around it. And and in reality, what it's really asking for is the spontaneity of engagement. Um, I see the likes of the two of you as real gifts for healthcare, for medicine, and for the lives of practitioners to step into this next generation. The benefits from it aren't just the technicalities and the, uh, the, the clinical qualities of medicine being practiced, but starting to look at everybody involved in it through a more holistic lens and what can be needed, not just over time, but in the moment. Kellen, it's been a real pleasure to have you on and for you to share your Thoughts and feelings with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was surprisingly fun. I I didn't know how I'd feel about it, but this was very smooth. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad. To oh, good, <laughs> good. Well, I just I'm absolutely delighted. Absolutely delighted to have met you. Look forward to meeting you in person. Likewise. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, Kellen. just a moment tom and i will reflect on our conversation with kellen and we hope you join us for that
he just exhibited a lot of consciousness about his life and choices. And that is just such a powerful space for us on our journey uh, to be that awake uh, about our life, one, and then the choices that we're making in our life that obviously impact and inspire uh, our lives. So that just really ran through it and really stood out for me. Um, just incredibly thoughtful and very courageous. Uh, one of the other things that uh, really stood out for me as I was listening to him talk is it he showed a real ability to reframe his experiences and challenges in a way that he was able to shift from that really labored and heaviness around failure and really saw those as amazing opportunities for learning, for evolving, for growing, for expanding, for redeeming. So he's just able to extract out of experiences and challenges um, almost without sounding overly poetic, I said, oh, wow, that's really amazing. He sees those things as redemptive and growthful rather than belittling and failing. I recently started a new job and it's a new environment, new culture, new people, new physical workspace. And what I found for myself was I made some otherwise petty mistakes that normally I wouldn't just because I'm in a new environment and like, you know, you just get used to certain things. And so when things are different, you kind of miss yeah. some things. And one of the things that I missed, I felt really bad about. It. I was like, God, that was really dumb. I can't believe that I did that. <laughs> and when I re-listened to um, Kellen talk, it actually brought me a lot of comfort because one of the first things that he, that he said was, um, I remember my first week, I made some really silly mistakes, things that I normally wouldn't do. I just forgot very normal steps that we take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. And when I heard him say that, Tom, it just made me feel so much better. I was like, God, I'm not the only one. Yeah. And you know, one, yeah. of the, one of the reasons that I really wanted Kellen on is because I have so much respect for him. I mean, there are very few people that I personally know that I think are um, as resilient as tough. And when I say tough, I mean, he has a kind of grit that is not bombastic. That is no. not kind of advertised. It's, it's quiet, but it's so present and yeah. it's so deep. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I love about Kellen or his story is if Kellen can struggle, anybody can struggle. Yeah. At least that's, that's the yeah. way that I see it. And so I really yeah. wanted him here because, I mean, if people really, really knew Kellen, like pe the people that know Kellen respect Kellen and they love Kellen and they think he's such a powerful clinician. So for him to say, I struggled, I think carries a lot of weight. Yeah. You, I love the way you just uh, framed that up because there is this strength and this gentleness in him both. Like it, it's they're they're not, um, they're not in conflict. They're actually in partnership. And he, uh, really brings a lot of humanity and truth to the idea that, that, that our journey is filled with struggle 
and to remove kind of the guilt and the moral judgment around all of that. Uh, and, and, and he, he made this statement around giving himself permission to it almost was, I, I don't know that he actually used that language, but what I heard in it, and it's a very powerful thing when we finally give ourselves permission to really live our lives. And with all of the, you know, the, the, the failings and the fall downs that happen with it, but just that, uh, uh, I really heard himself giving himself permission. I thought that was really wonderful. Um, on that note, there's, there's a clip that I wanted to share with you that specifically comments on that. So why don't we hear that clip and we can maybe kind of, uh, discuss Great. it. So I have it all teed up here. I'm going to, I'm going to play it for us right now. Like relief, you know, and then, and then also I, I realized, you know, well, I, I'm focusing too much on like what these other people think of me. Like, I just need to focus on doing the job and making myself better right like it doesn't necessarily matter like if all these people think my you know all these small little things are not up to snuff it's like i just want to get the most out of this fellowship i want to grow and i want to be the best version of myself that i can be which is easy to say but i think it's hard to do and i think i I emerged from that rock bottom with that mindset that like this is the path that i'm going to go on is like i'm not going to focus on all that other stuff i'm just going to try to you know survive the year and really just do the best I can clinically. And I think that change of expectation allowed me to survive. And and I think Hmm. I ended up doing a lot better and I got more out of that fellowship than I would have otherwise if I didn't do that. Because otherwise I would have just been completely overwhelmed and then I wouldn't, I would have been essentially just like, you know, drowning or in quicksand. Wow. And Tom, um, you know, he uses (laughs) the word survive twice. And I really just want to sit with that because for a person like Kellen to use that term, I think signifies a lot. And so what he had to do was to kind of decide, okay, where, where do my values lie? What is it that I really want to do? Am I sacrificing too much of myself in the pursuit of a goal? And, you know, he did uh, previously bring up this comment of a double-edged sword where, you know, he's very capable of doing difficult, challenging things. At the same time, it does take a personal toll. And he got to a point where it seems like the toll was becoming more than one could reasonably bear. And so he had to to decide, what do I want to do with that? And I feel like a lot of people in that situation just kind of decide to blindly um, go towards the place that they think they're supposed to go to, even if they know that it means it, it might destroy who they are to their core on some level. And so, and I, and I think it takes a lot of awareness to say, you know what? I need to step back right now. I need to protect myself right now. And, and my feeling is we don't prioritize ourselves and we keep pushing. And at some point the engine breaks. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you, you said it, and I, I don't want to complicate it uh, uh, because it's not actually complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Uh, really important, transformative, inspired things do are challenging because they ask something of us, but they're not actually complicated. This idea, Kellen made a very conscious you you can't make these decisions while you're half asleep 
uh, he made a very conscious decision to really center around his own expectations of himself rather than trying to live to expectations in the outside world. And all of the great spiritual and philosophical teachings and the field of psychology has always been about helping people center themselves around their own journey, which then allows them to show up in the world in a more robust, more powerful, more inspired space. But as long as we're only living externally, and trying to meet some arbitrary standard set by some arbitrary body, by arbitrary people, we're going to constantly be thrashing, lost, stressed, and profoundly unhappy. Wow. I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, it seems to me that we live the lives that we think we're supposed to live. We <laughs> live the expectations of our family members, our loved ones, our society, and it may not be true to who we really are. And I think the, you know, just in what I see in my friends and colleagues around me, the people that are the most liberated, that are the most free, are free from the expectation that they even set for themselves. Nonetheless, ones that are set by the people around them, they're free and then you can contrast that with people who live lives dictated by the expectations that are imposed upon them and they might they they might appear to be successful but internally they're raging mm -hmm. and yep. then and then when they let it go it's as if they just sh they've shed this skin so yep. i think it's incredibly important to just be true to yourself that's the first step yep. Just be whoever it is that you are, regardless of what anybody thinks. I was really struggling with a situation in my life. <clears throat> I think I was 20 years old. I remember I was in Brussels at the time and I called my parents and I was just, and I was just thrashing and in a lot of pain and just feeling lost. And I remember, and it was really shocking because it was my dad that said it to me. And I, I just never experienced my father to be that centered and reflective. He was a very powerful person in the world by external standards. But I remember as I was talking to them, and I think I was bawling my eyes out. And I remember my dad said to me, he said, he said, Tom, what we're asked for, whatever your spiritual beliefs are, what we're asked for by God, by the divine, by the universe is to sing the song we were given to sing. Hmm. We're, we've, we've, we were given this contract and we get to do something with it. We need to take ownership of it. And your only responsibility is to live the life you were given to live and do it brilliantly, courageously, and compassionately. You're not here to do it for someone else. You're here to do it for you. And when you do that, and this is the beauty, you have so much more than to offer the world. But when we look at this pattern, and it is so prolific in the West, and what I mean by the West, I mean the West on the global landscape, and it's profoundly um, 
uh, it is, it's a profound dynamic, particularly in the United States, is that we're so disconnected from who we are in those really precious things that we're constantly trying to meet these outside expectations, which puts us in a chronic state of being embattled. We're embattled with each other. Uh, we're embattled with ourselves. So we're always off center. And we end up viewing because we're not, uh, we end up viewing the world around us as filled with scarcity. Um, so we're always in a defensive posture. We're always in a competitive posture. We're always in an embattled posture. We're always in a protective posture because we're so off centered from who we are. And then you see somebody that is really integrated really centered, living by their own appropriated values and expectations. And then the way they show up in the world is filled with so much abundance, so much ability to connect, to build partnerships and community, to transform things, to innovate. They're not held prisoner by this fallacy. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's profound to see the difference between those two. There's a comment that you made that I wanted to see if you can elaborate on. So from the clip that I played for you, a little bit after that, you say, don't prove it, learn it. And and I just wanted you to just, can I just play that little part for you? And, and you can kind of maybe go into Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So here, let me just play it. Um, I just want to hold that space for just a second. That was so elegant, the way you just took us through that. What I heard in that is probably one of the most powerful things is when we shift from this proving something to actually shifting over to the courage and the grace of learning it mm -hmm. rather than trying to just prove it. Uh, it's a really huge shift. And maybe nobody else on the outside world would recognize it, but sort of the internal mm -hmm. journey is significantly different. That comment, I think there is a lot to that. And I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit more. If you could share mm -hmm. with us kind of what your thoughts are on that statement. Mm -hmm. It's, um, there's a, there's a dynamic, uh, I wrote an article on this actually. Uh, there is a dynamic that we all carry around inside of us and it's an innate fear of being wrong. Uh, and that underpinning fear that we all share as humans is basically, it's the strongest fear that we carry, and it's all around rejection, uh, non-acceptance. Uh, that's where loss lives. Uh, that's where losing lives. That's where being wrong lives, is this underpinning fear of rejection, of not belonging, of being wrong. And so when that fear acts as a dominating compass for us, um, we're constantly uh, kind of struggling to be in a posture to be right. I got to be right. Mm -hmm. I got to win this. And when we are in that psychological, mental, and emotional framework, what we completely shut out is the possibility of something new, a new truth a new discovery, a new ability, a new connection, something that didn't exist before. And um, so 
there's a there's a thing in the Buddhist tradition. It's very very powerful, and it actually is inculcated in Christian tradition. Uh, in the uh, uh, it's in the Jewish. It's all it's in all the great spiritual teachings in the Christian teachings. It's uh, to make yourself as a child. And what it's actually saying is to go back to a beginner's mind. In Buddhism, it's called the beginner's mind. And it doesn't mean that we go back to being stupid, uh, uninformed, clueless, uh, confused. What it's saying is that we recognize our biases. We recognize this fear around who owns the truth. And we open ourselves to discovery. It is one of the most powerful psychological and spiritual dynamics. If, if, if everybody worked on this single muscle right now, it is revolutionary. Um, I remember when I first discovered it, my mentor pointed it out to me and I really thrashed around it for a while. And then when it, came into full bloom for me, um, I thought this is a life changer. This ability to be in a state of curiosity, to be in a state of wonder, uh, to be in a, dis- in a state of desiring to discover something new. So we see this in uh, religion and we see it in the, sci- in, in the science community as well. So in religion, uh, fundamentalists, the framework of fundamentalist thinking is that I own the truth. And when we're in this place of, of uh, needing to kind of own the truth, it's all driven by fear. And so when we're able to step outside the fear and open ourselves up to the possibility of something that didn't exist before, it's... It's just profound. The science community, uh, the science community, um, the the really courageous pioneers in the science community says, yeah, that's great. We know all of this. Yep. Got it. That's great. Now let's start exploring the unanswered questions. Let's go and push into the unknown. So that courage to say, yeah, we get this. It's a part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. Let's go find some new truths here. Let's go find some new discoveries. Let's go open ourselves up and remove ourselves from the restrictedness of our bias and reductive thinking. That is a gorgeous invitation. It's a gorgeous opportunity for us individually and collectively. Tom, you know, one of the other themes that I uh, was struck by was um, the theme of letting go. And how important it can be. Sometimes we are we try to hold something so tightly that we choke it in a way. Um, Kellen in the podcast once said, I was thinking about quitting. Mm. And th- the way that he kind of got through that was the progressive act of letting go of certain th- uh, components that maybe he felt like were just overwhelming for him and in letting go he actually was capable of maintaining his position and one might find that counter 
counterintuitive. Well, how can I possibly let go of something while keeping it? And I think the opposite is true. If you really want something and you know, you do have to pursue it, but there's a component of letting go of the desire of ever actually getting it or letting go of some components around it. You, You know, it's like you want to take at the same time you want to not take. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the idea of letting go mm. and getting to mm-hmm. whatever goals it is that you've set for yourself. Yeah. Wow. That is such a rich one. I love it. Uh, multiple examples popped into my mind. It's interesting when we really look at deep work, we can always reference kind of spiritual teachings. And I think that uh, once again, all the great spiritual teachings reference this. I think Buddhism, once again, touches on it, a really gorgeous thing around non-attachment. It really confuses the Western and contemporary mind. And I think you touched on it nicely. Well, uh, how do I do that? How do I let go of something, but at the same time have it? So there again is kind of the literalness. Um, When we, uh, uh, there's there's a couple of really elegant examples. Uh, um, One stands out really profoundly because it really made the news. Uh, But to listen to athletes, professional athletes, uh, Christy Namaguchi was a professional, she was in the Olympics, professional skater. And she commented her performance won her a gold medal. Um, And when she was interviewed, she said, I didn't think. She said, would I like to win a gold medal? Absolutely. But she said, I let go that the goal was to win a gold medal. She said, my goal was to go out on the ice and do what I do and have fun and give it my all. So she let go of the goal of the gold medal. The gold medal is a byproduct. It's not a goal. The goal was to step onto the ice and to give a performance that was who she was. The gold medal became a byproduct. And this is probably one of the most powerful things that people struggle with is, um, so I'm I'm stepping into a very challenging piece of work down in the Bay Area this week with a complex client down there. And the way that I'm going to go into that work is I'm letting go of some arbitrary goal or expectation around what it's going to do and what they're going to say and, and what's going to be the outcome. My goal is I'm going to show up I'm going to bring the highest level of my professional capabilities. I'm going to bring the depth of my humanity and I'm going to stand in courage with them. But I can't own the outcome. What I can do is be an influence and an alchemy on the outcome. So as we learn to let go of these arbitrary expectations and instead pull ourselves back like Kellen talked about, I'm going to let go of all of this stuff and I'm just going to focus on doing this work, doing the best I can, applying myself to the process rather than attaching to this arbitrary, frequently ego-based goal rather than the conviction, the competency, 
of what I do inside my craft. One of the things that I love about meditation is this, I think, is a perfect example of what we're talking about. When you meditate, um, if so, first of all, there is no goal, but 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 if somebody were to say, well, how do I do this? How do I meditate? <laughs> how do I get to a state of nirvana? Okay, well, the simple answer would be, well, just sit down and breathe and focus on your breathing and just let go of the self. And they'll say, well, invariably, I, I think about, you know, what, you know, tasks I have to do and I'm worried about the past and I'm thinking about the future and I have all these thoughts coming in. How do I let that go? And the answer is you don't try to let it go. Right. You let go right. by not trying. Right. Right. And that really confuses them. Like, well, I don't understand how I'm supposed to not have these thoughts and you're telling me to not think about not having thoughts. And I'm like, yes, because you're thinking about it too much. You have to get to a point where you just simply release it. The thoughts come in, you acknowledge them. And like a cloud just moving through the sky, you just let it go. You just acknowledge right. its presence and then you release it. Acknowledge exactly. and release. Exactly. And with That's Nirvana... Just- with meditation, it's this beautiful um, interplay between showing up, sitting on the mat or where, wherever it is that you are, closing your eyes, focusing on your breathing, having this intent to participate at the same time, letting go of trying to actually get somewhere with it. That is just really elegantly said. It uh, n- numerous examples pop up around this idea of non-attachment and letting go, uh, and recentering around the more profound goal. So examples, and I encounter this a lot in my work. I've got a wonderful, very very senior level creative director who's being recruited to a global position to be a creative officer, and and um, she's over-processing, overthinking about how to get the job. And so one of the things that I find myself a lot in my work is go into the interview. The goal isn't to get the job. Everybody's head wants to spin off their shoulders instantly. You may not want the job. You know, right now the job looks great on paper. Your goal is to go in and allow the interviewee or the panel to to know who you are, to get an experience of you, for you to share stories. Your goal is to go in, connect, build a relationship, um, let them know who you are and what you bring to the table. Getting the job is a byproduct Mm. of that. Here's the goal. Going on a pitch for a new client. The goal isn't to win the pitch. The goal is to go in and build confidence with the client, for them to understand you, to walk out of the room for them going, oh my gosh, I would love to work with them. Hmm. That's the goal. Getting the client is a byproduct of it. And I loved your example. It's like the money is a byproduct of doing what you do. So the goal is harnessing the power in our craft, in our work, and bringing ourselves fully to it, the byproduct is the compensation, is the winning. Mm -hmm. 
all of these other things are byproducts of it. But that's where we get twisted around and we start pursuing something that in fact actually doesn't nurture us, feed us, bring us joy, sense of satisfaction. Instead, what it does is it continues to disconnect us. It stresses us out. We're shocked that we're unhappy because we're doing what we thought we wanted to do. It's because we're disconnected from the parts that make it meaningful to us. Mm, absolutely. It brings up the question of, can we live a meditative life? Mm -hmm. Can we bring that practice of meditation to our day-to-day -day conscious life? <laughs>